In this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Therese Canaris, physician and CEO founder of Curie DX. This week, our conversation is about FDA's new policy on gay and bisexual men donating blood, Sesame Street's first Filipino character, and more. Hey there, my name is Bernadette Smith. Welcome to Five Things in 15 Minutes, my weekly show where I bring good vibes to DEI. That is good vibes to diversity, equity, and inclusion with a little dash of corporate social responsibility. What I've found is that there are lots of news stories about what's going wrong in the world and lots of negative data, but there are also a lot of things going right. That's what I like to focus on. I search for DEI stories that we can be inspired by and learn from. My hope is to inspire you to experiment with some of these inclusive actions and policies within your own organization to help you build a more inclusive world. Let's get started. Will you please introduce yourself? Hi, Bernadette. I am so thrilled to be here. So thank you for having me. Uh, again, my name is Therese Canaris. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Johns Hopkins and also CEO and founder of CurieDX, where we are creating point of care tests for telehealth using just a cell phone picture. I am so excited about your new business. And I, you, you and I are friends, so I've heard about it. But will you tell tell the audience a little bit more? I mean, that was, a, by the way, a perfect elevator pitch, but let's get into it a little bit more. Uh, sure. Well, I'm very passionate about it, so happy to share. This all started with, well, let me ask you, Bernadette, do you know that moment when you start getting sick and how that feels? Yes. I've been feeling that on and off over the past month or so. Yes. Yeah. It's that sinking feeling of sometimes it's achiness, sore throat. For me, it's also a layer of panic <laughs> and not panic about being sick, but I don't have time to be sick. And I see this every day in the ER. I see families coming in, rushing in, just wanting to know what's wrong. And they spend hours and $100 copays just to end up being told maybe it's a virus and Tylenol and Motrin will help you get better and it'll pass. And what I've realized is I think families, patients, um, everyone wants that autonomy to be able to find out what's wrong. And COVID showed us that, that home tests are give so much power and autonomy to us as individuals. So what we're doing is we're creating screening tests using just a cell phone picture. We're starting with strep throat. So you can take a picture of your throat and it will give you a screening prediction on whether or not you have strep throat. And that'll hopefully guide whether you need to go to the doctor or whether you need antibiotics. Well, what I love about this is that, I mean, I, I personally see the equity connection here, right? Because we know here in the U.S. there's no universal health care, and there are a lot of low-income folks, people with really high deductibles and co-pays, for whom not only taking the time but spending the money to go see a doctor for something simple is just out of the question. And so it's really a, an, an important life. I just think it's so important for folks to, to help improve healthcare outcomes. A hundred percent. So I, in my clinical job, I work in East Baltimore and we see a lot of families in the East Baltimore community. And um, in that population, I have uh, patients and parents who they may be working three part-time jobs 
just to make ends meet. And jobs like that where you're getting paid hourly, you don't have salary, you don't have all these days off. So what are they doing? They're coming in when they have that little bit of time. It ends up being Friday night. That's the only time they can get in or they don't have transportation. So they're waiting and suffering at home or coming in whenever they can get a ride or a lift. So there are so many components of equity that speak to what happens when you're acutely ill. Well, what I appreciate is that you found a really creative way to close this gap. And, you know, something we don't talk about on this show very often, hardly at all, truly, is healthcare disparities. And we know that Black folks in particular and, and BIPOC folks more broadly have poorer health outcomes than people like me. And, and I see this as a really fantastic opportunity to, again, to help sort of bridge that gap. And you know what? We have to kind of take it into our own hands. I like how you took it into your own hands um, because it's not something that the government is going to provide. Yes. Well, that's that's the fun of innovation. And, you know, all of this work came from my research at Johns Hopkins where it's an environment of innovation and research. And so you're right that the it's hard to, sometimes to create new ideas, new concepts when you're purely relying on government funding and that's where like great ideas and and the resources of an academic institution can you know create something like this i love it so in the work that you're doing both in the hospital and with your business what about it is giving you hope right now hmm. well i am someone who's really excited about the future and I, I see a ton of potential in technology. So our, our core product is driven by AI, which I know has a lot of connotations and perceptions. There's certainly a lot in the news right now about ChatGPT and you know, what are its limitations. I, I know that there are some who worry about you know, what, what are the risks with AI. The way I look at it is more, what are all the opportunities where it can elevate us as humans? Um, where it can, and on the clinician side, how can innovative things like AI help us be better doctors, help us be better diagnosticians, you know, even save some of our cognitive efforts so we can spend more effort on just empathy. So I think just the future of what AI and technology hold, that's what gives me hope. That's amazing. I love it. And, and what I love is that your perspective on things is so different from every guest I've ever had on this show. So it's just, I mean, and I love our guests. I really do. Um, but I just love he hearing this additional perspective on things. So in this past week's newsletter, I wrote about my experience recently in the, over the past few months playing pickleball for the first time <laughs> and actually getting... Um, my butt whooped in pickleball by people who are 10, 15 years older than me. And what I love is that it has playing the pickleball has reminded me or let me know that I'm ageist, right? Cause I had some swagger going in. I think I, you know, I can, I can get this. No, I, <laughs> as a beginner, I definitely routinely got myself whooped. And I think it's a beautiful thing because I love constantly learning and being reminded of what I don't know and being reminded of my own bias. Now, you know, so I just wrote about this as sort of the kickoff to this past week's five things. Is there any part of your of, of what I just described that you can relate to related to uh, ageism? <laughs> Bernadette, I am a, an eternal victim of ageism. 
when I was 18, I looked 13. When I was when I graduated from med school and became a doctor, officially a doctor, people were asking if I was still in high school. And I mean, this this is still an ongoing challenge for me to be in a position where, you know, especially in the clinical role and also now in the CEO role where I'm in a leadership position. And I'm I'm in a position where I'm making large, major, important decisions. And I am constantly feeling like I have to validate my credentials and establish my my credibility. Um, there was a <laughs> there's a story once. I was um, getting on a bus, a Peter Pan bus, to go to the airport, and I had my backpack on because it was a trip. And the bus driver stopped me and said, "Hang on, hang on. Where are your parents?" And I said. <laughs> know at home and he goes well hang on there because under 13 you need a permission slip and I was like I'm 30. Wow well you're gonna be getting carded for a long time you've been on the flip side of ageism yes yeah it is it's not in certain I know a lot of people value looking young and youth and youthful skin, but there is there are downsides to it, especially depending on what, what role you're in and what effect you want to have. Yeah, it's certainly not so harmful on the pickleball court. Plus, now I've learned a thing or two. <laughs> okay, uh, let's get into this week's good vibes. The first story this week comes from Sesame Street, which has been in five things quite a bit. Well, this time, uh, Sesame Street introduces TJ, the show's first Filipino American Muppet. What I love about this is that not only is the Muppet created by a Filipino American animator, but portrayed by voice actor and puppeteer Yunan Shentu. Um, what, it's just great for representation. What do you think? You're you're Filipino, right? Filipino American. Yes, yes. So my mom is an immigrant from the Philippines. I was born and raised in Maryland. And I was raised by my mom's side of the family and raised in a Filipino household. So I, I love this, this story and what Sesame Street is doing for, for representation. Because to me, a huge part of the American story and, and being Asian American is, is the idea that this is a place where so many cultures come together. And being being Asian in the United States doesn't necessarily mean that you yourself were the immigrant. And I know a lot of uh, friends who are of um, Asian descent, but they may be third or fourth generation. And so there's there's this beautiful melding of cultures where being Asian American is a combination of all of your um, American and, and uh, cultural things that we get just living here in this country, combined with all of your ancestry and heritage and all the things that your family teaches you and passes down. I also have two daughters who are three quarters Filipino and one quarter um, white American. And they, uh, it's, it's a challenge for me to teach them what it means to be Filipino and Filipino American. And I mean, the, lately the extent of it is we eat white rice every day <laughs> in our rice cooker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's like a little piece of like culture that that is sort of ingrained into our home. But there's so much more to being Filipino that I just can't or don't have the capacity to teach them. So an opportunity like this where they're seeing a version of themselves of a Filipino American Muppet on TV. I mean, that that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, your youngest is is Sesame Street age, right? 
Yes. <laughs> I love it. That's great. I'm glad this is uh, something that, that can help them feel more represented and seen and in media. Okay, the second story comes from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which has made it easier for gay and bisexual men to donate blood. So up until now, basically, gay, gay men have been banned from blood donations, um, which obviously means that a whole lot of folks, um, that there's not, not a lot of, there, there are a whole lot of folks who can't donate blood, which obviously could impact the supply. Well, they have, uh, the FDA has finally eased the bans by saying that gay and bisexual men in monogamous relationships can donate blood without abstaining from sex. So this, this uh, br- brings the U.S. up to the U.K. and Canada in terms of policy. About time, huh? <laughs> um, we should celebrate it as a step forward. So I think as far as changing policy and, and recognizing how hard it is to change age old generations old policies, that level of momentum that's needed to change a policy is remarkable. So let's we should celebrate that. The you know, I have a couple of perspectives on this. One, as a clinician, I, you know, I I transfuse my patients with blood regularly. I, as the clinician, I'm not really thinking about where did this blood come from? Maybe the patients may as, as a recipient of blood, but there's a certain level of trust that we put into our healthcare system that the appropriate levels of screenings and infectious disease and communicable disease testing has been done. Um, and so I, I trust the institution that I work at. I trust our blood bank, and I, I know that they do a remarkable job um, administering blood safely. However, thinking about this, especially with that DEI lens of why are we discriminating based on sexual orientation and and relationships, that just seems irrelevant. I I understand that there are certain um, acts and behaviors that can increase the risk of HIV transmission, but that's not necessarily specific to um, homosexual people or men who have sex with men. And, you know, even a quarter of new HIV diagnoses are not from uh, in homosexual uh, people, it's it's in heterosexual people. So I think there are behaviors that heterosexual people do too. So it's really, I, what I worry about in this policy, it's, I, it's isolating orientation and personal details that are not the true risk factor that we should be screening for. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So the risk factor that's being screened for now is sexual behavior and recent partners and um, uh, other factors as well, um, as opposed to just having being a man who has sex with man. So there's a lot of work still to do, but uh, here on five things, we celebrate the incremental (laughs) bits of progress as well. This next story also comes from the healthcare system, which is a nice model from Dartmouth Health, which is a New England-based healthcare company. What I love that that they've done is they've implemented measures to mitigate bias during the executive search process. So the goal here is to have an upstream approach to ultimately provide equitable healthcare outcomes. So candidates are required to submit a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement alongside their resume, and that carries equal weight during the process. The selection process is also blind with identification, identifying uh, information removed. And there's a lot more. We'll make sure we put the article in the chat and the show notes for you. But uh, it's a great blueprint that I would love to see other healthcare systems 
getting on board with because ultimately this is about, again, improving patient outcomes. And there's a lot of healthcare disparities that show up, racial healthcare disparities in, in particular. Mm-hmm. So I, I love this, that uh, both components, that they're blinding the reviewers to the candidates um, because I think that speaks volumes about removing layers of bias. And the I appreciate the that DEI statement that they're obliged to submit. I having written those statements myself, I worry sometimes that for some individuals it's like, uh, you know, I I promise I will do this. I pledge I will do that. And it's hard to know if that statement is trans is truly reflecting one's personal values. And I think the best evidence for that is, is there a history of implementing the the change or the DEI values that you stand for? So I think that having a statement is a step in the right direction. So we celebrate the win. Um, but I would also love to see how that correlates to actual, you know, past behavior or outcomes or um, like historical efforts in implementing DEI policies. Well, especially now that chat GPT can probably whip up a DEI statement in about 30 seconds or less. (laughs) I think that's a fair point. Um, But check out the article, folks, because there's a lot more that they're doing specifically around the hiring committee as well to to improve this process. Good, good vibe. But of course, most of these stories, as we've talked about before on the show, are a, a yes and Okay, the fourth story this week comes from Airbnb, which last year created a live and work anywhere policy that allows staff to work from any location worldwide for up to 90 days per country. And about 20% of employees are taking advantage of this program. But what I love is that the business has actually never performed better, according to the CFO. And uh, this is really important for folks, particularly women and folks from underrepresented groups who are more likely to face microaggressions in the workplace, have a lower income, and so they might be less likely to live in expensive places like Airbnb's uh, headquarters in the Bay Area. What I love about this is in an indirect way, this supports women, uh, women who work and women with families who work. You know, just talking to some of my friends, I I have a lot of physician friends and physician friends who have a partner and kids. And despite, you know, having a a profession and a career and often having a spouse with a career, the trend that I've seen even among my, my colleagues is the woman of the couple in hetero couples still tends to take on the childbearing responsibilities. Some of it is the the raising things when they're young. Some of it is, oh, they're sick from school. Who's going to pick them up? You, in the hetero couple, it's the, it's the woman, it's the mom. And so policies like these, where it creates that flexibility to get the work done, but get it done in a way that also enables having a family life and having a personal life, I think that that is how a company supports Uh, women and moms who work. So I think it's beautiful. Absolutely. And the last story this week also is a healthcare story. So I really lucked out with you as my guest this week, Therese. Um, The last story is about an Ohio nurse 
practitioner who developed a breath-controlled video game called Easy Induction that helps children relax when going under anesthesia for surgery. So the video game involves children putting the anesthesia mask on and start breathing into it, which then blows up a little balloon that wakes up all the animals in the game. So it's been tested on hundreds of patients at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and is now licensed for other hospitals. You must see a lot of kids who who struggle with anesthesia, I would imagine. Um, yes. I, and we do do sedations in our ER. It's not general anesthesia like in the operating room, but very similar to this. Um, I, I love this for so many reasons. This is just another example of innovation that comes out of, of a need and seeing what patients go through and creating something that helps them. Um, I've, I've seen a few variations of this, some with virtual reality and I, I think it's a beautiful way to support patients and, and sort of gamify, to some extent, gamify the experience and also introducing biofeedback without labeling it as you are going to undergo biofeedback right now. Um, so, so creating it where it meets patients and kids where they're at, that's, that's a win. That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. All right. Fantastic. Well, this week's call to action, folks, is to watch the PBS special Rising Against Asian Hate narrated by Sandra O. Oh. So we're going to put this uh, this link in the chat to that documentary. And uh, Therese, how can folks find you if you want to if they want to get in touch with you? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, probably the best way is our company's website, curiedx.com. That's C-U-R-I-E dx.com. Um, there's a way to sign up to get on our mailing list and uh, reach out to us directly there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me this week. And thank you everyone for watching or listening. And if you don't already subscribe to the five things newsletter, you can subscribe at five things dei.com. Have a great week. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to five things in 15 minutes. I hope you found yourself inspired by at least one of this week's stories. If you did, would you mind sharing it with a colleague and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform? And if you don't already get my Five Things newsletter, join at fivethingsdei.com. I'm Bernadette Smith, and I'll see you next week right here for Five Things in 15 Minutes, bringing good vibes to DEI 